Hey there, history fans. Welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Lauren. I'm Melissa. In today's episode, we have a special guest with us today. Say hello. Hello. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> We're good. How about you? Doing really well. I'm so honored to be joining you today. My name is Casey Jump. And uh, just for a little background on me, I have a master's degree in sociology. So I have a background in sociology, but I have a huge passion like you guys for history, as you know. Um, whenever we meet up, we're always talking history, history, history. <laughs> we love it. Yay, history. <laughs> but I also have a lot of other passions, such as skincare. I'm an esthetician professionally. And yeah, I have a lot of varied interest, spirituality. I uh, actually minored in religious studies and stuff like that. So it's a little bit about me. Awesome. <laughs> Today's episode, we are talking about theater during the Elizabethan era. Woohoo! <laughs> fun times, fun times. <laughs> This is Casey's choice episode. <laughs> yes, I have a deep love and fondness and appreciation for everything Shakespeare <laughs> and for the, the Elizabethan era. I mean, what's not to love, right? I mean, the Tudor era is the most popular era in English history that I know of. Absolutely. For good okay. reason. <clears throat> is Tudor era more popular than Victorian? Yeah, as far as I know. It's one of the shortest ruling eras, but it's the most popular one. I mean, Henry VIII kind of made it rather popular with his six wives, but that's another yeah. time. A lot of political intrigue. <laughs> but, a lot but going on. Also, if you do want to leave us a review, we'd love to, we'd love to know what you think. Also, you can contact us through our email at historyexplainsall at gmail.com. We also have our Facebook and Instagram, which is historyexplainsall underscore podcast. And you can visit our Instagram page for our Today in History segment and to vote on upcoming episode topics. We hope you enjoy this episode. And now literally on with the show. Truly, truly on with the show. All right. So... Elizabeth I, also known as the Virgin Queen, from 1558 to 1603 was the ruler of England and Wales. And theater before her time, basically during the time of her father, Henry VIII and before, it didn't really exist. It was not a permanent fixture in life. There were no theater houses, playhouses, uh, troops or anything like that. There were actors but they were called upon when needed and they would go to wherever they were called to majorly it had to do with obviously the elite the upper class they wanted entertainment for guests well the the actors would go to their house or they would go to the palace i mean henry the eighth enjoyed the theater every so often as well so it wasn't until Elizabeth I became ruler of England, theater took a turn and it became extremely popular. Touring troops with professional actors came into existence for the first time, and the first permanent theater was actually built in 1576. Elizabeth I 
was a huge fan of the theater. And she actually often held gatherings for these people at the Royal Palace or wherever she was actually residing, didn't really matter. And she actually used the theater to her own advantage. Yes, to her own advantage. <laughs> she used it to, it to show people how great and powerful the Tudors were. Of course, that's her family headline. So, I mean, wanna hold on to your power? It's a good way to do it. And the actual first professional troupe was actually sponsored by Elizabeth. What? <laughs> And it actually, uh, Elizabethan Theater, by the way, went under another name, I forgot to mention this earlier. And it was English Renaissance Theater. And it particularly is referring to the style of theater that they performed in those days. And it became so popular that theater companies became permanent and you be, playhouses began to be built. I'll get into that in a bit. And audiences from all classes were able to attend theater. It wasn't just for the elite anymore. You wanted to go, if you could afford the ticket to get into the theater house, you could go. Where you sat was a different story. And of course, the most famous player that we know of during this time was William Shakespeare. Uh, he was from 1564 to 1616. Elizabeth died in 1603, so he did start writing during her reign. It became extremely popular. And what we know as theater today, it, it originated with the English Renaissance Theater, AKA Elizabethan Theater. So it moved into what we know of as theater today, which is really interesting. It just shows how long lasting of an effect it had. The plays English Renaissance Theater had became less religiously famed because everything was, of course, religiously based back then. And it became more politically themed. Woohoo! I don't know which one's worse. Hmm. <laughs> I, I, I vote for religiously <laughs> themed. <laughs> I, I will take a politically themed over religiously themed any day. I think at least with politically themed, you can have more comedy out of it. Yes. I guess you can say that, yeah. Fair point, fair point. <laughs> <laughs> and basically what this did, Elizabeth, by her sponsoring the first troop, she was able to control the troops, the theater, and the playwrights. She control she Elizabeth the first, she ruled, she kept control, she did not let go of it, hence why she didn't marry. But her control went to the point where she banned plays from being performed and in order for a play to be performed they had to go to the government parliament and receive a license without a license if you didn't have a license for that play and you didn't have a license for your troupe which are two different licenses by the way you didn't you didn't act in the theater and you didn't perform that play if you did, well, that's a lot of trouble. I really wouldn't want to end up in the dungeon slash tower. No, thank you. Over a play. <laughs> and the actual first licensed troupe of actors outside of Elizabeth herself were actually under Robert Dudley. He's the first one to have actually truly received a license, not just sponsored, mm -hmm. but actually receive a license for the troupe, which again, not really surprised it was under Robert Dudley. For those who don't know, Are who you? is Robert Dudley? Oh, you you mean the main lover of Elizabeth the First? Oh. 
Yeah, that guy. <laughs> the infamous Robert Dudley. <laughs> Just because she didn't marry doesn't mean she didn't have a life. <laughs> so, and of course, this all started in London where Elizabeth was majorly centered and based herself, but it became so popular that it spread outside of London. It reached all the way up into Bath and they began to build theaters as well, like actual permanent fixture theaters. And it became more popular and part of your regular life and Troops became more independent as time went on. So before Elizabeth passed away, it kind of starts, yes, we're gonna make professional troops, we're gonna build theaters, and we're gonna have uh, professional playwrights with licenses and sponsorship. Then it went, oh, you just need the license. You don't really need the sponsorship as much anymore because they were able to make the money on their own by the late 1500s, by the closer to the end of her reign. So it's incredible. It is incredible. And what's also incredible is how quickly it spread. Because imagine this, this only started in what the mid, mid of her reign, like around the time of Shakespeare's birth, probably. And it spread so quickly because if you think about it, we think of England today as, oh, it's not very big as a country. Like it fits inside the United States. It fits inside the state of California. Let's let's just be honest here. But back then, you didn't have trains, you didn't have cards, you had to pass everything by word of mouth or letter in the hopes that the letter wouldn't get lost by by the postman who rode a horse, by the way. Like you had <laughs> carriages and you didn't have the fast locomotives that we have today. It took days, weeks to get from one end of the country to the other end. So like I was saying, uh, troops became independent. They no longer needed the patronage of the upper class. And another thing was the actors. When we talk about the actors and you look into it, uh, there were only men during the Elizabethan era. Women didn't act. They could attend the plays, but they could not act in them. So when you're looking, when you're what when they were watching a play, my goodness, my English, when they were watching a play and, and they saw a woman on the stage, it was really a man dressed in woman's garb. And women didn't begin to act the the leading ladies' parts or the female parts until about the till the 17th century after Elizabeth had passed away. And as we said, if any, if you could pay the, for the ticket, you could attend the theater. And the theater was pretty darn cheap. Made money, but it was cheap because a lot of people went. And women were, like I said, women were allowed to ten, attend the theater, but it was frowned on. People didn't really like that women were attending theater. And some, many women of the upper class who did attend the theater would actually wear a mask over their face like they were going to a masquerade ball to hide their face, to hide their identity. And <laughs> normally the assumption was that if a woman was at the theater, then she was a prostitute. And that's due to the location, which I'll get into in a minute. And the theater's location was normally like downtown London. People didn't want the theater near their neighborhoods. And therefore it's in the seedier parts of towns, cities, towns, doesn't matter. It wasn't in a nice part of town. And it's a place of social gathering for people. 
And, you know, the, like I said, City Pro Town, brothels right around the corner. Hence, women that attended the theater were assumed to be prostitutes. That is the history of Elizabethan theater in its general sense. There was also the theater buildings, playhouses, the Globe Theater that is so famous, didn't exist till later, but theaters became permanent fixtures. Buildings were actually being built. And the first theater, literally titled The Theater, <laughs> was funded and built by James Burbage. And it was built on land that Burbage had leased, leased, leased in Shoreditch. And it, it became extremely successful and it set a precedent that other theaters would be built, which they were. And the next theater to be built was The Curtain. Yes, they were very imaginative with their theater names. <laughs> Burbage also owned a home in Blackfriars and his home was actually used for plays in the winter because it had a roof. So most theater buildings were circular or polygonal and normally had an open roof. There was, it, it's kind of like a dome today, like a, a football field. There's no roof on majority of football fields. Some of them do obviously, cause we've rebuilt them over the years, but there's no roof normally on a football or a baseball field or a soccer field. Same thing with the theater back then. And tickets, by the way, tickets were as cheap as a penny. Very cheap, chilling. I wish they were still a penny today. <laughs> Me too, it'd be really nice. I'd go to the theater way more often, but it's expensive. So, Burbage was known for his patronage of the theater because he also had a son who was Richard, by the way, his name was Richard. And Richard was actually an actor himself. And Richard was known to have played many of the main characters in William Shakespeare's plays. Hmm, Shakespeare plays, what can you go wrong? And we don't know what Burbage's original theater looked like, the theater. We don't know what it actually looked like because we don't have paintings of it, but there was a written account of it. And the written account just description was that it was of a polygonal shape with three stories. So you had your base level, your, your upper level, and then the top story, the top level as well. And it was made of timber. Of course, it had no roof. From one of the directions is a stage jutting out from the middle, into the middle of the floor. And two staircases on the outside of the building, which led to the upper portion or the second and third floors of this building. And like I said, theaters were mainly built in the seedier parts of town, in this case, near the Thames River, particularly by the Southern Bank. It was also there for reasons like people didn't want it in the, in the good neighborhoods. They didn't want to deal with the noise. They didn't want to deal with a lot of things, but also because this is still during the time of Black Death. The bubonic plague still existed. It was a huge part of life. So a lot of people considered this an area where the bubonic plague could and would possibly spread. So they didn't want it near their neighborhoods for that reason as well. Terrific. Okay, so I will be taking on the next section of the podcast in which we are going to discuss the types of plays. So the section of research that I'm going to be presenting today are the types of plays or the genres of plays that were not only popular, but were really created during this Elizabethan era of English theater. And as Lauren had mentioned earlier, 
English Renaissance theater is often referred to often incorrectly as Elizabethan theater. And this time period encompasses the time frame from Queen Elizabeth I's rule from 1562 to 1603. And with Jacobean theater following after at 1603 to 1625. And then beyond that, there was actually something called Caroline theater from 1624 to 1642. And then theater began to die out again after a number of years after the Caroline, Caroline Theater. So it is a time period from 1562 to 1603 that was the true height of popularity in theater. It was Elizabeth, Elizabeth Theater. Elizabeth was a huge patron of the arts, which she sort of took on as an extension from her father's role as King Henry VIII, as we all know, was known for his lavish and grandiose lifestyle. He often held festivals himself where different artists would perform and there were big sporting events, sometimes extreme sporting events. And Elizabeth herself was particularly fond of theater and chose theater as like her thing, her cause. And soon it became much more than a passion for theater, but it became a means for, as mentioned earlier, political and national propaganda and persuasion which we'll be discussing in greater detail later in this segment. So getting to it, with a little bit of background, during this time there was a high demand for a large, large quantities of plays to be written and to be produced. There was a desire for a variety of kinds of plays to be written that would attract these theater goers of all different backgrounds to these playhouses. This was due to growing populations of people all over England, particularly in the cities, and the city of London in particular, as people had money to spend, as more individuals becoming more prosperous during Queen Elizabeth's reign, often referred to as her golden age. As has been mentioned, the queen actively sponsored artists and playwrights as she was a big fan of performance, which were actually frequently held at her residences. She was particularly fond of plays that projected her glory and that of the Tudors. So the need for entertainment also grew as did the means to escape the daily struggles of everyday life for some and as a means to fight boredoms for others grew. So as a result, playwrights were becoming more in demand and more in vogue as Elizabeth Champion Theater. And as playhouses were beginning to pop around all around the city, and they were really in competition with one another for getting and procuring the best plays by the best playwrights of the time. Theater also became a social event for many, especially among the nobility. Theater became a means for individuals to socialize, to network amongst each other, Individuals from all social classes were welcome in the theater, as was mentioned earlier by Lauren, which meant that the nobility and individuals from the lower classes would frequently cross each other's paths, at least in going to find their seats in the playhouse. <laughs> so all of this encouraged theaters to grow and to flourish. So playhouses, again, needed an abundance of plays. And in order to put on, and they needed to put on different plays throughout the day as they did, not they did not desire to repeat the same play throughout the day. Like how boring would that be, right? That the same show is playing day after day. 
So paying audiences in the Elizabethan era had a real penchant for spectacles. So that demanded a variety of plays written of the highest quality content out there. And these plays needed to be entertaining. And plays up until Elizabeth, the, they weren't very entertaining, to be honest. So new types of plays need to be created. So playwrights sought inspiration and they really had to create something new. So new genres of play it was. So I have a little quote here to enter into the different types of plays. This is from one of my favorite Shakespearean plays, Hamlet. And this is spoken by Polonius when the traveling players come into town to put on a play. So introducing the, the, the company, this is one of my favorite quotes. The best actors in the world, either for tragedy, comedy, history, pastoral, pastoral comical, hist historical pastoral, tragical historical, tragical comical historical pastoral, scene individable, or poem unlimited. So that just goes to, he's listing essentially all the different kinds of genres of plays that were around during this time. So as I said before, plays before Elizabethan theater were not very entertaining. Um, they were plays that were more biblical. They were morality plays and these were phasing out and waning in popularity. The reason for this being is that during this time, this was the Renaissance. Many great thinkers of the Enlightenment were starting to turn away from God for answers to their existential questions about life and love, etc. New genres consisted of, as, as Polonius mentioned, <laughs> history, tragedy, and comedies. And there were growing subgenres of the city comedy, which was particularly popular in London, as well as a new hybrid subgenre of tragedy comedy or all those others that I just mentioned with Polonius. So, of course, the most celebrated playwright, as we mentioned earlier, was Shakespeare. And his plays covered themes such as romance, history, revenge, murder, comedy, tragedy, tragedy comedy. <laughs> and the Queen, as we said earlier, would actively um, sponsor these artists and playwrights. And she was a big fan of performances that, again, projected her glory and that of the Tudors. And history plays were becoming the most popular as English nationalism was developing. So because there were so many plays that were being performed daily, one interesting fact is, is that there were actually flags that were posted to let the audience know what was playing that afternoon. So these were color-coded based on the genre. So black was for tragedies, white was for comedies, red was for historical. And in the 1570s, actually, religious play cycles were actually banned, which I found very fascinating. So with these new genres, playwrights were sort of returning to the light from the darkness, and they were turning again for inspiration to the works and ideas of many famous Greco-Roman philosophical thinkers and writers and artists that were, you know, popular 400 years prior. And these plays started to take on more human humanist qualities. And what really set apart Elizabethan theater 
at the time was that it was more secular. So it was about the people. It was about humanity, the human condition, human nature. It was speaking to the good and bad in all human beings. And this appealed to all the social classes and the theater goers. There were plays that spoke about love, jealousy, murder, revenge, stealing, cheating, sacrifice, acting noble, behaving badly, and the like. And there was a lot of humor to be found in all of this. So these plays were wonderful because they were not lecturing or preaching to their audiences like the dark morality and biblical plays of the past. Okay, so continuing on. So in my research, um, written of William Shakespeare, the most known of the playwrights during the Elizabethan era, uh, one of my sources wrote, Shakespeare more or less invented a form of drama that mixed all genres. So his tragedies contain comic elements, his comedies tragic elements, and his histories contain both. In Shakespeare's case, the winds of Renaissance gave him the freedom to reflect all aspects of human beings in his plays. And he wrote plays that had not only lasted for 400 years, but which have very rarely, if at all, been better during that time. And the same source wrote that towards the end of Elizabeth's reign, playwrights were developing new themes and techniques, which led to the distinctive Jacobean theater with its more crusty, violent plays that focused on the human being's capacity for selfishness, dramatized in in-depth representations of ambition and its effects. I really like that quote. I, th I think it sums it up beautifully. What's really sad is that of the many plays during this time, many were unfortunately lost. Out of roughly 3,000, only 600 remain, to include um, Shakespeare's Love Labors One. So they actually found out that that lost Shakespearean play, Love Labors One, was actually printed and in circulation, but it's gone missing. So I found that kind of interesting. So before we move on to the next section where I discuss playwrights, is there anything else that you would add, Lauren or Melissa? Hmm. Did we, uh, I think you discussed, if I remember, that the plays were lost. Do we have any idea as to why? There are a lot of theories on why these plays were lost. You know, one of the more common theories that has been simply disproven as not factual is that the reason why certain plays were lost because, was because they weren't as popular then, they weren't as like profitable, but it actually turns out that they have found records of these lost plays in like different uh, companies registers of the plays that they put on during the time mm -hmm. and a lot of these plays that were lost were actually plays that were the most popular and actually more profitable than the plays that remain it's crazy interesting yeah and so that's one theory um, another theory is just based on like human carelessness there is one story I was listening to a podcast called the Shakespeare Unlimited podcast and the episodes entitled Shakespeare and Lost Plays mm. and uh, had a guest spot with David McGinnis who 
is an associate professor at Australia's University of Mel Melbourne. And he was talking of a story about how there was actually in the 17th century, a gentleman who owned an incredible, impressive collection of these plays that were lost and he actually lost them. <laughs> and when you look in his trackings of all the, the plays that he owned in his own records, he blamed it, <laughs> the reason why they were lost on an illiterate cook. Apparently, these plays were just laying about, <laughs> you know, some of them loose leaf. And uh, a cook who couldn't read used these to like line muffin pans or whatever, <laughs> just took them and used them without asking. What? So there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of stories about that. That doesn't make sense. Yes, but the one that makes the most sense to me and I know we're gonna talk about this later in the episode, is actually that has to do with censorship. Not only like censorship in the way of the government, AKA Elizabeth, censoring these plays, you know, were more satirical, political, what have you, but also a lot of authors, like there was one that Ben Johnson, who was also a notable playwright during the time, he actually self-censored censored himself and he destroyed a piece, a piece of work of his because he was really afraid that he was going to get in trouble for what he wrote. And there are other stories of the government getting wind of plays that were being written that were going in the more political, satirical, not in a good way direction that would look disfavorably on the queen or other, you know, nobles at the time, what have you, and that the, the government put a stop to it before it was even finished. Wasn't that the Office of the Rebels? Is that what they're called? Yes, yes, exactly, yes. And I believe you're going to touch on that later. Is that correct? No, not, not in my no? section. Okay. No. <laughs> okay, well, yes, you're absolutely right there. So um, what's really interesting in, is in this podcast that this this gentleman, David McInnes, he actually has a database of lost plays where he's trying to piece together, like they know titles of plays that were lost and trying to piece together what they were about. So there, that there could be, you know, we could find a, a larger story here as to why these plays were lost. You know, maybe they were destroyed or, mm. but yeah, there's a lot of different <laughs> theories to it. So that podcast is really interesting. Maybe we can link that. It's one of your sources, so you have to learn more. more. Yes, so I, I will send it. <laughs> and that's all I have to say about the, the types of plays, the genres of plays. Should I proceed to my next section? Please sure. do. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So part two, we're going to be discussing the playwrights. So in this next section, I'm going to discuss the playwrights in English Renaissance theater. So... Playwrights during this time, as I've repeated earlier, were in high demand, as new plays were in demand daily. So with theaters playing multiple plays a day, theaters, of course, would not wish to repeat the same play throughout the day, let alone repeating it certain, a certain amount of times per month. So these plays needed to be written and turned over to these playhouses and to the companies very quickly. Uh, most of the time, these plays were commissioned. And uh, playwrights found 
most often that in order to survive in this competitive environment, in order to make any kind of money, that they would have to collaborate creatively to turn out these plays at, at, a, at the pace in which they were demanded. So most often these collaborations between playwrights became a necessity in order to survive, to make enough money. And it may be surprising to hear that being a playwright at this time when this, the theater's flourishing, this was not always a lucrative career choice, despite this popularity in theater. So one source I discovered was from Philip Henslow's diary. And Philip Henslow has been described in, uh, I, I, I'm going to go ahead and do this, <laughs> but I love this description, by the way. It's been, he's been described in Wikipedia as an Elizabethan theatrical entrepreneur and empresario. I love that. <laughs> so his diaries, let me tell you, are such incredible sources of information on the theatrical world dur during this time. He, he owned the infamous Rose Theater. And in one of his diary entries, it was notated that um, in the years around 1600, Henslow would pay as little as six or seven pounds per play. And this was probably at the lower end of the range, even though the best writers could not demand much more in payment. So very few playwrights during this time were able to work solo and flourish. On average, a playwright working by themselves could only produce about roughly two plays a year. So there are exceptions to this rule. Uh, Shakespeare being one of those. He was one of those rare few along with Christopher Marlowe, Kit, <laughs> who, uh, would, who would write alone. Although it has been rumored that Will and Kit did in fact collaborate together for a few of Shakespeare's plays, but there will be more on that later in future episodes. So stay tuned for that. And uh, another interesting fact is a lot of these uh, playwrights actually began as stage actors to include Shakespeare and Ben Johnson. And Shakespeare was actually rumored, again, we'll discuss at a later date, that he was actually a traveling player. Going further into my research, I read that from one source that Shakespeare actually produced fewer than 40 solo plays in his entire career that spanned more than two decades. So 40 solo plays in two decades. And he was really only financially successful because he was also an actor. And more importantly, he became a shareholder in the companies for which he acted and in the theaters that they used to, to, to perform the plays at. And Ben Johnson achieved his success as well, in addition to being a playwright, as being a purveyor of the court mosques and he was talented at playing the patronage game that was a, a huge part of social and economic life of the era. I would like to learn about the more about that. There were playwrights that actually fared you know worse off. Um, they unfortunately uh, in looking towards the, the biographies of early figures like George Peel and Robert Greene and later ones like Brahm and Phil Massinger, 
their stories are really marked by a lot of financial uncertainty and struggle and poverty, actually. So again, playwrights dealt with this natural limitation on their productivity and their creativity by, you know, combining into teams of two, three, four, sometimes even five playwrights to generate plays. The majority of these plays written in this era were collaborations and the solo artists, again, were very rare. So splitting the work, of course, meant dividing income. But most often, these arrangements seemed to pay off for playwrights as the more collaborations they did, they had the, you know, more income coming in at a, at a faster pace. One example of this is that of, of Thomas Decker. Of his 70-plus known works, roughly 50 of those are collaborations. And he did pretty decent for himself. In a single year, in 1598, Decker wrote 16 collaborations for Philip Henslow and earned 30 pounds or a little under 12 shillings per week, which is roughly twice as much as the average artisan's income of one shilling per day. So that was pretty interesting. <laughs> and at the end of his career, Thomas Haywood would famously came, claim to have had an entire hand or at least a main finger in the authorship of 220 plays. That's impressive. Can't even imagine, 220 plays. So, you know, a solo artist would need months to write a play as where a team of Henslow's writers, four or five writers, could, could produce a play in, in as little as two weeks. The one thing about the plays, though, were Unfortunately, after the plays were turned over and sold to the company, the playhouses, the playwrights would no longer have any ownership of their work. They would possess no control over the decisions of casting and revisions, publications. There were no royalties like there are today. It's not like in Shakespeare and Love where, you know, Shakespeare was helping in everything from casting to, you know, starring in the play himself and all of that. That's not necessarily that accurate, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, so that's where my research ends. And I know both of you will expand on some of the information I touched on a little loose, you know, loosely. Um, but anything additional either of you would like to add from this section? Thank you guys. Yay. I would Pause. stop here. Yeah because then you can move into that next subject seamlessly on the next one because the, this recording is almost over. Okay, oh, well, I'm glad I heard it. Uh, well, in that case, I'll end this recording and then we'll start- Less than a minute. Yeah, I'll Bye. go ahead and get ready. All right. All right, see you guys in a minute. Perfect. Bye.